times like these when the world is so sad it's hard to find the flow it hurts so bad all those things that seem to matter flying in the wind everything's scattered the future's uncertain the present so dire desperation destruction hatred and fire loved ones lost countless missing terrorism and war they got us wishing for the day when we can all get along sadly we never did hostility runs strong centuries and eras generations of war murder and terrorism what we fighting for hard to talk about it as the battle rages on searching the bible the torah the quran we're coming up empty answers hard to find when we see this brutality among the humankind don't know what to do got to keep going i guess let's ride through this together on the investopedia express Welcome back and welcome aboard, and thank you for riding with us this week. My heart has been so heavy all week about what has happened, what is happening, and the uncertainty about what comes next in Israel and Gaza. About the only thing I can do is be here with you, and for that, I am so grateful. We gotta do what we do, but that's really hard to do as we feel all of the suffering and the fear. If you have people who've been personally affected by this, our heart goes out to you. And on we go. It was another volatile week across the capital markets with mixed results for stocks as investors looked for safety in treasury bonds, cash, and gold as the war in Israel escalated with no resolution in sight. Bank earnings offered a mixed picture as JP Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo reported a big boost in their net interest income amid rising rates. Citigroup reported revenue across all of its newly announced five business units and it's continuing to plan to sell several of its international retail businesses. Combined, big bank profits so far soared 34% to $22.5 billion. But those banks also warned about higher capital requirements courtesy of the Fed, rising loan losses from consumers and businesses, and the fallout from the war. As J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon put it, this is the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. Treasury yields cooled a bit after spiking the prior week as dovish talk by several Fed officials signaled that the recent rise in those yields may be enough to keep financial conditions tight enough to keep the central bank from raising rates again this year. And financial conditions are super tight. If you listen closely to what the banks were telling us last week, loan growth across the big banks was less than 1% last quarter. Businesses and homebuyers aren't borrowing with rates like these. As Treasury yields mellowed, equities found some breathing room, pushing the S&P 500 up just under half a percent for the week, while the Dow added 0.8%, and the Nasdaq, it fell 0.2%. While the final numbers were little changed, the volatility throughout the week was pretty intense, as were the headlines. And that leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one, remember last week's episode when we touched on the oversupply of U.S. Treasury bonds that was contributing to the plunge in bond prices and the spikes in yields? Well, we got more evidence of that last week as the U.S. government tried to sell $20 billion worth of 30-year U.S. government bonds. Demand, as you might imagine, was pretty weak as dealers had to buy up 18% of the supply themselves. Typically, bond dealers buy around 11% of the supply to keep the market moving, but 18% is historically high. Not only that, the auction tail or the gap between the lowest bid versus the average bid was the narrowest since November of 2021, according to the FT. But as Axios points out, there are new buyers for all of this debt 
and they can be pretty ruthless. As the banks of Japan and China back away from U.S. bonds, hedge funds and mutual funds are swooping in, looking to lock in those 45 to 5% yields. According to Bloomberg, big hedge funds like Citadel and Millennium Management have been pretty busy in what's called the basis trade. According to our favorite website, the basis trade is basically the buying of a security like a bond or commodity at the spot or listed price and trading it quickly based on the future price of that security. In other words, these funds are looking to make a quick buck on the spread between those two prices with no real intention of holding the security for very long. It happens all the time in the commodities market, but when we see it happening in the long-term U.S. government bond market, we should be very wary, and the Federal Reserve is, believe me. Number two, with borrowing costs at multi-year highs and balance sheets under pressure, corporate profits are under a lot of scrutiny. If we are indeed going into another period of economic uncertainty and potential sluggishness, profits are paramount, but they are not plentiful. According to Goldman Sachs, almost half of U.S. publicly traded companies are not profitable. The cost of servicing their debt, and they have a lot of debt, is forcing these companies to make some tough decisions about how they spend their money. And that means labor costs and headcount are going to come under a lot of scrutiny in the coming quarters. We may have just had a blowout jobs report for the month of September, but that might have been the high water mark for hiring that we will see for quite a while. Job cuts and even business closures could be coming around the bend if rates stay higher for longer. And number three, amid all of this, the S&P 500 celebrated the one-year birthday of the new bull market last week. It seems hard to believe, but the S&P 500 is still up more than 20% from the lows of last October. The NASDAQ 100 is up more than double that. To be sure, the past year will go down in history as the weakest first year of a new bull market since the year after the 1987 crash. It only rose 21.4% that year. If you're looking for a silver lining, our pal Ryan Dietrich has one. The second year after the 1987 crash, the market rallied another 29%, the best year in its history so far. Will history repeat or even rhyme again this time? We don't know, but that's why we stay invested. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's jam-packed with earnings reports from some of the most widely held companies in the stock market. Those include Tesla, P&G, Johnson & Johnson, AT&T, Netflix, Bank of America, and Taiwan Semiconductor, to name a few. Investors are looking for any kind of catalyst to get excited about stocks, and maybe, just maybe, we'll find them in these 10 Qs. On the economic front, the U.S. Census Bureau will release national retail sales for September, giving us a good look at the strength of U.S. consumer spending. The University of Michigan Michigan's preliminary consumer sentiment survey for October, released on Friday, showed a pretty steep drop as inflation is wearing us down just as we head into the critical holiday shopping season. We'll also get the latest updates on the housing market, including September housing starts and existing home sales and the National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index for October. You know the deal. Those high mortgage rates have pretty much slowed the housing market to a crawl. Fed Chair Jerome Powell will speak at the New York Economic Club on Thursday, the last public speech he'll make before the Fed goes into its so-called blackout period ahead of its next meeting on October 31st. The October 7th attacks on Israel and what's happened since are undeniably horrible and unsettling. There is no denying that, and my heart has been heavy with a profound sadness and worries about all the repercussions of what is happening in Israel, Gaza, the Middle East region, and here in the U.S. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that everything has changed. The only way I feel I'm able to process it as a journalist and frankly as a human being is to try to understand the geopolitical and economic repercussions of what is transpiring and what might come next. The human aspect of what's happening is something 
I just can't do justice to on this podcast. So I'm leaning into learning more about the bigger picture. For that, we're going to lean on an expert who has studied the geopolitical dynamics of the Middle East his whole career and whose perspective I found to be very enlightening. Simon Mabin is a professor of international relations at Lancaster University in the UK and a contributing writer for the conversation. And he is our very special guest this week on The Express. Welcome, Simon. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Take us back to the Middle East and particularly Israel before October 7th. There was already a deep discord inside Israel over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's attempts to essentially put the country's Justice Department under his cabinet's control, removing a key check and balance in Israel's government. What was going on? Yes, so Israeli society prior to the past week's activities was beset with a number of serious schisms, a number of deep lines of division between left and right, between religious and secular, between pro-government and anti-government, between pro-Netanyahu and anti-Netanyahu. And these were all sort of crisscrossing across the social, the economic and the political landscapes of Israel. You talked about Netanyahu's approach to the judiciary. There were widespread protests across Israel in the, the past year or so at Netanyahu's actions. There's all manner of frustration at the precarious political landscape. We've had countless elections over the past few years. There's a, a fraught and precarious coalition that's in place. And Israeli politics was, was in a very fragile state, trying to navigate all these different pressures from the right from the left, from pro-reform, from anti-reform, from pro-regime supporters, from anti-regime protesters, and then everything changed with these attacks. Everything has changed, and as I said, we know it's just not going to be the same ever again there. So there was also, Israel was actually working towards potentially doing more business, opening up its economy, partnering, for lack of a better word, with Saudi Arabia on some projects. People were talking about it. You write about the Abraham Accords of 2020. What were those and what path did that put Israel on in relation to the geopolitical economy of the Middle East? Yeah, so there's been some really interesting shifts in regional politics and regional affairs over the past few years. In the past, the past century, past 100 years of politics across the region, Israel had been increasingly isolated fought wars against a number of Arab states, but then things started to shift. And that shift, those normalizing processes, really gathered pace in 2020 with the signing of the Abraham Accords, which essentially normalized relations between Israel and a number of the Arab states, in particular, the UAE and Bahrain, also Morocco. And they joined Egypt and Jordan in recognizing and normalizing relations, I should say, with Israel. Key part of that was trade, was economic links and security links, repositioning the sort of the lines of division in terms of security across the region away from Arab-Israeli conflict towards a tension with Iran and extremist forms of political Islamism. And Saudi Arabia was the next in line, seemingly, to normalize with Israel, to recognize Israel and to normalize diplomatic relations. And with that, that would have been a hugely symbolic step in, quote-unquote, ending the Arab-Israeli wars that had kind of defined Middle Eastern politics for the past century. And that was driven by shared security concerns, but it was also underpinned by these, these serious desires to cultivate economic relationships 
between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. The two have got a lot in common in terms of their visions for the future. They were already tacitly working together. There's a lot of back-channel work, a lot of back-channel diplomacy, a lot of under-the-table security collaboration. And so the normalization agreement that was mooted was very, very close to happening, and it would have essentially formalized all of this, brought it out into the open. But then the attacks changed it, and the Israeli response to what happened in terms of its engagement in Gaza raised questions about the vitality and the importance of the Palestinian question for Saudis. And that's where we sort of pressed pause on this normalization move. It will happen at some point, I would imagine, because the undercurrents are all heading in that direction. But for now, in light of Israeli military incursions into Gaza, the Saudis have thought we can't be seen to be on the wrong side of Arab public opinion here. And they have not, the Saudi Arabia, MBS have not spoken really about the attacks other than to say we should de-escalate, but they have not condemned it. So that's notable as well. But Saudi Arabia is on this path with Vision 2030 to transform or change its economy away from being so fossil fuel dependent into a broader economy, which was part of why they were negotiating with Israel. What did that look like? What is Saudi Arabia trying to achieve and why was Israel a potential partner in that? Yeah, so it's key. Uh, Vision 2030 is is the flagship project of Mohammed bin Salman. He's wanting to move the kingdom away from its reliance on oil, um, long been this key oil producer in global politics, occupying a central role. But in light of questions of peak oil and uncertainty about what's left, MBS wanted to, to reimagine what the kingdom would look like. And he developed this careful strategy of Vision 2030 in line with a whole host of different consultants from around the world to fuse Saudi tradition and culture in a modernizing, neoliberalizing experience that would open up the kingdom to tourism and push the kingdom to be essentially the new Dubai, this new financial hub for the region, a technological behemoth. And the real sort of jewel in the crown for this was Neom, which is this futuristic city, this space that would be, well, in Saudi territory, a space for the future that would be manned by AI, manned by robots and non-sentient entities and really bringing the future to the present. Alongside that, there would be ski slopes in the desert and all manner of technological developments that you can only sort of possibly imagine alongside the line, which is this innovative architectural vision of creating a mile-long city in a line. And these, of course, require huge levels of financial investment huge levels of technological expertise. And MBS realized that they couldn't rely purely on their own economic largesse, of which the Saudis do have a lot, of course, by virtue of their, their oil reserves, but they needed huge amounts of foreign direct investment. And so they tried to open the kingdom up, tried to draw in investment from around the world. And the killing of Jamal Hashoji five years ago kind of derailed things a little bit it made investors increasingly unwilling to get involved. But over time, MBS has sought to revive and recycle that image. You've seen a lot of money going into football, 
The Saudi Pro League has attracted players from around the world, big reputations, driven by economics, driven by a desire to boost the Saudi economy. And Israel, of course, plays a key role in this because of its economic capacity, because of its economic power in the region and in global politics, and because of its technological ability. By virtue of those levels of technological expertise, that would be essential in making NEOM come to life in the way that MBS envisages it, and also allows for sort of the security dynamics of NEOM and the line to play out in the right way. There's a cities and spaces of the future, and the security dynamics that are required to make them safe and to make them of the future in terms of security as well as the sort of socioeconomics requires that level of technological engagement that, that Israel has and many other states don't have. And then there's Iran, which says it was surprised by the attacks, but no friend to Israel for centuries. And there was talk of potential loosening of sanctions from the US on Iranian oil before all of this happened. What does that look like now? Where is Iran in all of this? And there's a lot, of course, we still don't know as we learn more and more about how this all played out. But where were they headed in terms of potential agreements with other nations, a loosening of those sanctions, and in relations with Israel and some of the other Middle East neighbors? Yeah, so there's a lot of noise here. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that the Israelis don't know, and they've come up publicly, publicly and said, we don't know what level of involvement Iran has had in these incidents. And I think that's really worth stressing. We don't know, but the Israelis don't know. It would, I think, surprise me if Iran was heavily involved because of the stakes of this. As you say, Iran has been engaging with the US on a number of issues pertaining to hostages, uh, nuclear diplomacy. It wants to get back into the, the nuclear agreement. It wants to normalize with Saudi Arabia. It's been engaging in a lot of back-channel diplomacy for the past few years now. And that has come from the very top. That has come from the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. And that brings with it a huge amount of economic investment, a loosening of sanctions, and the necessary cash injection that would revive its oil infrastructure, which has been hugely dilapidated over recent years. Sanctions have hit Iran hard. And for Iran to, to give up on those years of diplomatic engagement, to go against what the supreme leader has been saying, and to engage in, in this type of action that would condemn it in the eyes of the world, again, that would immediately lead to a breakdown of that dialogue with the US, breakdown in the dialogue of the nuclear issue, and most likely breakdown in the dialogue with Saudi, the consequences of that would be huge. So if we're talking purely in terms of sort of pragmatic actions, it would surprise me. And the Israelis, as they've said, they just don't know right now. Right. There's still so much to be learned from all this, but there was a lot going on in terms of economic dynamism, geopolitical dynamism between all these countries, which you rarely see, which makes the timing of the attacks by Hamas pretty important. Not only was it on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which is very significant in the state of Israel, but very significant in terms of the timing, given all of these geopolitical and economic relations. Yeah, exactly. Symbolism matters. Um, so the 50 year anniversary of Yom Kippur is, is hugely important. But it also comes at a time when there are these sort of realignments taking place and the Hamas attacks, whilst 
in my view at least, driven by a desire for Hamas to gain legitimacy as part of a resistance movement against Israel, comes at a time when they are able to also disrupt these regional dynamics. So these, these heinous crimes actually have a number of different consequences for different audiences, different layers of sort of local, regional, and global politics. And I think that captures the the complex entanglements that are playing out across across the Middle East between Israel, Palestine, Saudi, Iran, Qatar, the United States, global politics. And this is, of course, coming at a time when the global supply chains have been put under a huge amount of strain because of the war in Ukraine. So it's all sort of playing out in one big perfect storm, of course, with devastating consequences for lots of people. Let's go back to the Israel economy for a moment. It's not a huge economy in terms of GDP, but it has a big footprint in terms of its technological abilities, its abilities in cyber and cyber warfare, its military capabilities. It has solar, but it's also very strategically located right there at the Gulf of Hormuz, where about 30% of the world's oil comes through on a daily basis. So it's geographically key. It has an important economy in terms of future technologies, but what else was happening there? And what does this attack potentially do to any momentum the Israeli economy had? It shifts the Israeli economy in a particular direction, I think. It, it emboldens the security dimensions of the Israeli economy. Of course, it hits consumer confidence. Of course, it has a negative effect on spending. But it, it I guess, emboldens those backing security types of investments and engaging in well, the whole security industry, I guess. That's the the really dark side of all of these incidents of terrorist attacks across the world. There is always a financial beneficiary to these things, and it's the security sector which immediately gets involved in one way, shape, or form. And as you say, the technological capacity of, of Israel to engage in high-tech nuanced, sophisticated lines of activity is, I think, one of the things that is very appealing for Saudi Arabia, because it doesn't have that long history of engaging in those sectors. And if it's able to get a partner that can do that, then it would be very happy. We know that the UAE has has benefited greatly, as has Bahrain, from Israeli tech in terms of regulating public opinion, dissent, at home and abroad through the Pegasus software. And I'm sure that has a great deal of appeal for Saudi Arabia. Tech matters. We know where the future is going. We know that future threats will revolve around cyber infrastructure, things like that. And having that backing from a state that has a long history of engaging in those types of sectors, the close relationship between civil military relations, it only will benefit Saudi which is why, or one of the reasons why I think that current of normalization is working and pushing in that direction. But for now, of course, it has to balance the, the court of Arab public opinion. We're only a little over a week into this, and it's impossible to see the future of how this is going to play out. But do you see any near-term path to resolution or stability, or is this just the beginning of a long period of chaos and instability in the region that could take years, if not decades, to sort out? 
Well, this is a product of years and decades of instability and, and violence perpetuated by a whole host of different actors, which has reproduced, reinvigorated, revived all manner of different grievances. And you can date this back tens of years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, depending on the stories that you're telling here. Sadly, I think this is just the latest incarnation of a complex, bloody, brutal history of division that runs the risk of being self-perpetuating. Without the role of someone like the US to play a very, very firm role in calling for restraint from Israel and then maybe Qatar imposing some form of control over Hamas, then this will lead to further escalation, which will create more instability, have further economic repercussions, and of course lead to a devastating loss of life across Gaza, people suffering there. And of course, this relives and revives the psychological scars of people in Israel who are still dealing with this on a, on a daily basis. You said this could go on for years, if not decades, but in a worst-case scenario, how bad could it get? Things are pretty bad for people in Israel right now. Things are pretty bad for people in Gaza right now. Things are pretty bad for people across the region right now. We know that Egypt is unwilling and indeed unable to let Palestinians in across the Rafah crossing from Gaza because of the severity of the socioeconomic situation they're facing in Egypt right now, having had huge amounts of loans from the IMF and the World Bank to try and get back on their feet, they're dramatically affected by the huge rise in grain prices and wheat prices as a virtue of the, the war in Ukraine. And so there's, there's a human side and there's a political side. I think the human side is things could get pretty, pretty bad because of the broader context in which this is playing out. Politically, we're seeing actors like Hamas and Hezbollah engaging with Israel and Israel engaging in military activities against those actors. But in terms of the political side, Hamas knows it, it can't defeat Israel militarily. It will not bring about an end to the blockade or the occupation through military means. So it will not want to escalate further because it knows that Palestinians will suffer. They will be the ones who suffer. Hezbollah will know the same thing. So I don't see the political dimensions deteriorating dramatically without some type of black swan event. That would be the, the positive spin. The negative spin, and this, I think, gets at an issue that hasn't been covered as yet, is what comes next for the people of Gaza and for the people of Israel. For the people of Israel, there is a huge trauma. There is a psychological trauma that strikes at the heart of their very identity and the ways in which the state of Israel was created to keep them safe from, from the world, in essence, from a sense of, of growing anti-Semitism. And we're seeing that playing out globally as well now. And at the same time, we're seeing rising anti-Palestinian sentiment. And in Gaza, with Gaza City facing all manner of aerial bombardments and a military incursion, the worry that I have, and the thing that's not being discussed, is what happens when winter sets in? Because you cannot rebuild the city in six weeks. The military incursion, the land invasion has not started yet. 
And history has shown us that it's incredibly difficult to rebuild anything in Gaza in light of the situation, the, the complexities of life in Gaza. Winter around the Mediterranean is cold. People will be struggling for access to medical supplies, food, money. Daily life will be incredibly difficult. And it's going to be very difficult to get aid in as well in light of the, the shifting global context. So that will be the thing that really hasn't got enough attention in terms of what comes next. And of course, there is an immediacy right now, which is dealing with the threat posed by Hamas. But in order to avoid things like this in the longer term, you have to ask those questions about the humanitarian dimensions. Simon Maben, the professor of international relations at Lancaster University and a contributing writer for The Conversation. Folks, read his stuff. We'll link to it in the show notes. We really do appreciate your time on this really important subject. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Yassine Dagari, who hit us up on the gram requesting that we explain fair versus realizable value. That's actually a daily double, two terms for the price of one, and we love bonus time here on The Express. Well, according to Yassine and my favorite website, fair value is the estimated price at which an asset is bought or sold when both the buyer and the seller freely agree on a price. To determine fair value, we can compare current market value, growth potential, and replacement value to find that number or price. And in accounting, we measure a business's liabilities and assets at their current market value to determine what's called fair value accounting. But fair value doesn't necessarily tell you the best price of that asset or business. Realizable value actually does. Realizable value or net realizable value, as it's called, is a valuation method common in inventory accounting that considers the total amount of money an asset might generate upon its sale, less a reasonable estimate of the cost, fees, and taxes associated with that sale. We use net realizable value to evaluate an asset's value for inventory accounting. Two of the largest assets that a company may list on a balance sheet are accounts receivable and inventory. Net realizable value is used to value both of those asset types. It's a little trickier to put a number on an asset or business using realizable value because we have to look at four key factors that determine it. That's collectability, broad economic conditions, the potential for obsolescence, and market demand. Once you take all of these into account, you get a clearer picture of what that asset or business is really worth today and potentially in the future. Great suggestion, Yasin. You just helped most of us get a little bit smarter. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, but especially this week. As I said, being able to share some thoughts with you is so helpful for me, and I appreciate that. I really, really do. Be extra kind to yourselves and the people around you these days. We need more of that. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.